Hello, and welcome to A History of Japan. Season 9, Episode 11, The Decline of the Ming Dynasty. When we last left our friends on the mainland, the Ming Dynasty had taken control of China and built a strong foundation for a functional, efficient state. In this episode, we will follow the further development of Ming China from the early 1500s to the latter part of that century. Considering the shorter time frame, I was originally planning to do a single episode covering developments in both China and Korea during the Sengoku period. However, both polities endured massive shifts and changes during the 14 and 1500s, and I didn't want to shortchange either one. The Ming Dynasty had been founded as a radically anti-Mongol successor state, which was hostile to the Yuan rump state and intent on restoring Han Chinese hegemony throughout East Asia. You may recall from last season that the Emperor Yongle of the Ming famously commissioned seven massive treasure ship voyages during his time on the throne, which, while they absolutely did not encounter the Americas, did help shore up the legitimacy of the Ming dynasty as a true imperial ruling house whose tributary authority stretched far beyond its own immediate borders. Maritime power was one of the main economic pillars of Ming dynasty infrastructure, and threats to that power were rightfully considered threats to the state itself. Part of their political policy of restoration centered around restoring Confucianism as the primary philosophy of governance. Technically, their version of Confucian philosophy is dubbed Neo-Confucianism, and it was essentially the same form of the revamped philosophy adopted by the Song Dynasty centuries before. In late 1487, the 17-year-old Emperor Hongzhi ascended the imperial throne and set to work reforming the Ming government to conform to Confucian principles. The basic tenet of Confucian governance is that political leaders should be actively engaged in their jobs and seeking to improve the lives of their subjects. Emperor Hongzhi seems to harbor a passionate love for such governance to an almost absurd degree. He involved himself in nearly every ministry, appointing new leaders where necessary and dismissing those he deemed unqualified. He even turned his hyper-Confucian dedication inward, encouraging his subordinates to openly criticize him when he made mistakes, and even to directly critique his policies without the usual fear of banishment, execution, or assassination. The intrigues that plagued earlier emperors seemed to have vanished under his leadership, and he displayed a broad appreciation toward many religions, especially including Islam. It's not unusual for Chinese historians to compare him with Emperor Hongwu or Emperor Yongle, and some would even argue that his reign was superior to those famous predecessors. However, it's worth noting that his frenetic approach to governance took a toll. He had never been especially physically fit, and the constant stress and excitement which he experienced through his reign did not help his overall health. It is especially remarkable that unlike all but one of his predecessors across previous dynasties, Emperor Hongji had only one wife and kept no concubines at all. This unusual monogamy, however, had a rather large unintended side effect. His wife only bore him two children, both sons, one of whom died while still an infant. In 1506, at the age of 34, Emperor Hongzhi died, and his only son, now 14, was set on the throne as Emperor Zhengde. 
Both the young emperor and his late father had similar upbringings, excelling in Confucian studies and showing great promise of thoughtful leadership from an early age. However, Emperor Zhengde's reputation is much more of a mixed bag than his father's. Generally, he is remembered as a layabout who eschewed his father's style of active, involved governance for a life of drunkenness, debauchery, and reliance on palace eunuchs to govern on his behalf. If this podcast's primary focus was the history of China, then it would be unforgivable for us not to have a wider discussion about the employment of eunuchs throughout several Chinese dynasties. They were the primary power holders during the latter-day Tang Dynasty, and their influence was so great that Emperor Hongwu, the founder of the Ming Dynasty, specifically forbade his ministers from ruling through their eunuchs. But the question remains, why did the Chinese make such extensive use of castrated men by putting them so often in positions of power? The full answer is, I'm sure, far more complicated than the simple explanation I am about to offer, but again, I'm sure a full History of China podcast would have greater insights. What it boils down to, for our purposes, is that the pre-modern Chinese viewed sexual lust as something with a potential for great distraction among the powerful, and thus terrible destruction for their subjects. It was believed that a man without gonads would not be so easily distracted and would therefore be more able to focus on the task at hand, whatever it may be. Because so many Chinese emperors kept harems with their many concubines, there was certainly a demand for guards who could be trusted not to <clears throat> directly meddle with imperial succession. And succession was a big part of the trust placed in eunuchs by the high-ranking officials, governors, and sometimes the emperor himself. A man who can create his own direct line of biological succession may become ambitious enough to decide he can create a new dynasty, whereas a eunuch's infertility meant that gaining enough of a following to be a direct threat to the mandate of heaven would be practically impossible. So where were these eunuchs drawn from? Some were ethnically Chinese and were made into eunuchs by desperate parents hoping to give their child a prosperous future. Many were originally children from conquered enemies and subjugated peoples who were induced to send eunuch children as part of their tribute. You may recall last season that the Ryukyu kingdom offered many such child eunuchs to Emperor Hongwu, only to be rebuffed because the founding emperor of the Ming disliked what he saw as corruption from the many eunuchs already serving in government and wanted to eliminate their influence entirely. In addition to being trusted with concubines, eunuchs were also trusted to help raise imperial children. Emperor Zhongde had several eunuch tutors and servants from the time he was young, and when he became emperor, he rolled back what was left of Emperor Hongwu's anti-eunuch laws and welcomed them back into the bureaucracy. Of particular note were a group of eunuchs called the Eight Tigers. The eight eunuchs who composed the tigers had grown close to Emperor Zhongde during his childhood and gladly helped manage the empire on his behalf when he took the throne. Historical records are generally very hostile to these courtiers, so it's possible that their reputation for limitless greed, avaricious corruption, and shameless exploitation was a bit overstated. In doing research for this episode, I learned that they are the featured villains in the video game Assassin's Creed Chronicles China. Tempting as it is to attempt to polish their tarnished reputations, I don't think the Eight Tigers were purely innocent victims who were caught up in palace intrigues. 
They attained and maintained their important positions in executive-level bureaucracies around the nation by flattering Emperor Zhongde and joyfully catering to his every need. In one famous incident, the emperor ordered many high-ranking bureaucrats and courtiers to dress as commoners and join him in part of the palace which the Eight Tigers had modified to look like a common city street. Emperor Zhongde likewise dressed like a commoner, and the officials present were told to pretend they were merchants and shopkeeps, and to try to get the emperor to buy something from their shop. Those officials who refused to play along were subjected to various punishments. While this incident would later serve as a basis for folk tales in which Emperor Zhongde would dress as a commoner to gain an understanding of what hardships his common subjects face, it was more likely meant as a way for the Eight Tigers to humiliate their rivals in court while simultaneously providing entertainment to their sovereign. While this might seem like a childish prank, it was also an expression of power. The Eight Tigers had been appointed to some of the most powerful positions within the Ming state, everything from army commander to cabinet treasurer. Eventually, even the secret police answered to them, which provided a wealth of blackmail which they could use to control even their most vociferous enemies. Just because they could not father biological children, however, did not mean that they were above nepotism. As their power grew, they arranged for their various male relatives to gain employment within various branches of the Ming state. Eventually, though, they delved too greedily and too deep into the imperial coffers, amassing a large amount of wealth for themselves, which should have otherwise gone into the treasury. In 1510, some of their rival courtiers came to the emperor and accused the leader of the Eight Tigers, one Lu Jin, of corruption and, more critically, of plotting against the sovereign's life. They claimed that Lu Jin planned to put his nephew on the throne in place of Emperor Zhongde, and that he would use his amassed wealth to smooth over any objections through well-placed bribes. The emperor ordered Lu Jin's home to be searched, and imperial agents found a huge treasure cache there worth billions of dollars in modern cash. Allegedly, Lu Jin had amassed over a million pounds in gold and over two million pounds in silver, over half a million kilograms and over a million kilograms, respectively, which leads me to believe that these figures may have been exaggerated from their original amount. However many actual pounds or kilograms of gold and silver he had collected, it was enough to destroy the emperor's trust in his friend. When the emperor questioned Lu Jin about this apparent windfall, the eunuch was unable to conceive a good explanation and was placed under arrest. Lu Jin and at least two of his compatriots were executed, though several were merely banished from court or exiled to a remote region. Lujin himself was subjected to one of the most infamous execution techniques, the death by a thousand cuts, in which the condemned is given a series of small cuts over a period of several days. He allegedly lived through this torturous execution for three days and received over 3,000 cuts before finally succumbing to his wounds and dying. While many sources paint Emperor Zhongde as a playboy aristocrat who let the empire fall into corruption and graft, it is notable that the Ming state was strong enough by this point to endure a few bad emperors here and there. Just before the fall of Lu Jin, there was an attempted uprising by one of the emperor's relatives named Zhu Jifan, 
the Prince of Anhua, who was partly motivated by his hatred for the punitive tax collection efforts spearheaded by the Eight Tigers. When Zhu Jifan's forces were defeated while trying to cross the Yellow River, the entire rebellion came to an end only weeks after it had begun. In 1517, a massive army from the Northern Yuan Dynasty attempted to take Beijing, but they were soundly repulsed by the Ming army. The Northern Yuan had been reorganizing under the leadership of Dayan Khan, a descendant of Kublai who had initially sought to establish official trade between the Northern Yuan and the Ming. He saw their persistent refusal to even consider his proposals as an insult, and thus the raid on Beijing was meant as a punitive stroke. However, after being so thoroughly defeated by Ming forces, they would not attempt another such raid until after Emperor Zhongde's death. In 1519, another relative rebelled and the emperor led an army personally to deal with him. However, by the time he arrived, the rebel army had already been soundly defeated and the troublesome relative was in custody. The emperor was so frustrated by this that one of his advisors actually suggested letting the relative escape to give the emperor an opportunity to hunt him down personally. The rebel leader was quietly executed instead. Although the emperor had taken pains to remove the eight tigers and other eunuchs from imperial service, he was not quite as militant about the matter as the Ming Dynasty's founder. At the time of the Ming Dynasty's demise a few seasons from now, there would be over 10,000 eunuchs working in various positions throughout the state apparatus. Emperor Zhongde's reign is particularly notable for his relationship with Portuguese traders. Before their official arrival in China in the mid-1510s, they had clashed with the Malacca Sultanate, a Malaysian nation which had been victims of Portuguese imperial expansion in 1511. Malacca was a valuable trading partner among many of their fellow Islamic states, and they had also been trading with the Venetians, who were trade rivals to the Portuguese. When the Sultan of Malacca informed the Ming court about the trouble he had experienced, having been forced to flee to a distant corner of his domain and wait there in virtual exile, the emperor was furious. Malacca was also a valuable trading partner to the Ming dynasty, and had been visited by the great Admiral Zhongde on his treasure voyages. The ensuing Chinese purge of their Portuguese visitors generally featured horrific public executions, torturous deaths, and summary extermination. In 1520, Emperor Zhongde was visited by an official Portuguese ambassador and seems to be warming up to these strange foreigners in spite of the rumors that they kidnapped and ate Chinese children. Whether the ambassador would have been successful in cooling relations between these two powers, however, remains a historical mystery. Emperor Zhongde died unexpectedly in 1521 at the relatively young age of 29. Apparently he was boating in the Grand Canal, drunk, and fell into the water. Later he contracted many diseases from the water, which ultimately ended his life. Unfortunately for fans of easy, stress-free successions, he was survived by no living children. Thankfully, he had a cousin who was descended from Emperor Chenghua, the father of Emperor Hongzhi. However, as it was custom for the emperor to be a direct descendant of a previous emperor, some paperwork shuffling was in order to legitimize the succession. 
the Portuguese were still seen as the most immediate threat, and the Ming navy succeeded in forcing a decisive engagement against them in the spring of 1521 at the Battle of Tanmen. The resulting battle was a crushing defeat for the Portuguese fleet, who would have lost every ship except the wind turned against the Chinese fleet during their final push. The Portuguese still had a firm hold of Malacca, however, and the Ming dynasty was unwilling to attempt an assault so far from their shores. The cousin of Emperor Zhongde, who would become Emperor Jiajing, did not like the idea of being posthumously adopted by his uncle, the late Emperor Hongzhi. Such afterlife adoptions were not unheard of in Chinese history up to this point, but the new emperor claimed he had a better idea. He proposed that his late father be posthumously elevated to the position of emperor, which would make him the son of an emperor and legitimize his succession. While it's tempting to imagine that Emperor Jiajing was simply displaying the Confucian virtue of filial piety, he insisted that his late father's promotion set his rank just a little above that of the late Emperor Hongzhi. It is possible that Emperor Jiajing was trying to guard against future usurpation, but it also seems likely that he was eager to rid the court of the influence of his aunt, the Dowager Empress Zhang, the mother of his imperial cousin. After much debate, protest, and outright defiance from many staunch Confucian officials, Emperor Jiajing got his way, and those who opposed him were summarily purged, either through dismissal, exile, or, in some cases, execution. While the scholar officials who served China's bureaucracy may have hoped that Emperor Jiajing would follow the path of the great Emperor Hongzhi and not settle into the licentious lifestyle of his late cousin, they probably later regretted hoping for an active sovereign like Emperor Jiajing. His rule took on a rather tyrannical tone, and his obsession with immortality led him into great acts of terrible cruelty against those who refused to cooperate with whatever magic potion he was trying to create from some of their more unsavory bodily fluids. His own concubines attempted to assassinate him in 1542, but their efforts failed, and they were executed afterward. His reign would last 45 years, the second longest of any Ming monarch, and for much of that time the empire remained relatively stable. Though he maintained a strong level of control over the court itself, the bureaucratic apparatus became riddled with corruption and graft. The northern UN armies invaded once more, and once again they came close to Beijing itself. They were repulsed thanks to the quick work of the Ming army, but there was real concern that they might return. Emperor Jiajing was more inclined than the late Emperor Zhongde to compromise, and many years later he promised the Mongols certain exclusive trade rights in exchange for a return to peaceful relations. One officer who was in Beijing at the time of this particular Mongol invasion was a young man named Qi Jiguang, who hailed from a military family and had come to the capital to take the imperial service examination for military service. His studies were interrupted by the Mongol invasion, which he and his fellow officer candidates were forced to help repulse. During the course of the siege, all officers and candidates were encouraged to submit defense plans to the emperor's office, and Qi Jiguang's plans greatly impressed Emperor Jiajing. Far from being an armchair general, Qi Jiguang took an active role in the city's defense and helped turn back the Mongol invaders. Both his valor and his apparent talent for battle planning put him on the fast track for quick promotion. 
1553, he was put in charge of Shandong Province's coastal defense and charged with eliminating the pirate menace that plagued China's shores. The Chinese referred to these buccaneers as Woko, meaning Japanese pirates, but this was an archaic term that was never really an entirely accurate description. Tempting as it was to blame piracy on Japanese barbarians, most of the Woko were actually Chinese, though they had a significant number of Japanese, Malay, Filipino, and even Portuguese among their crews. Trouble with piracy was nothing new in Chinese history, but by the mid-1500s, these disparate bands of adventurers were beginning to organize on a large scale and began sacking fairly large coastal settlements with impunity. Much of Qi Jiguang's later fame stemmed from his handling of the pirate menace throughout the latter half of the 1500s. He joined forces with other commanders and coordinated large-scale assaults on pirate-held towns, often conscripting local laborers into his army rather than professional soldiers. His version of conscription, however, was not the usual take-the-spear-and-try-to-kill-something. He trained these fresh recruits in using squad tactics with various mixed weapons in a supportive formation. Among the usual spears, swords, shields, bows, and firearms, he included a weapon which many historians believe he actually invented. Imagine a long pike with metal branches attached near its pointy end, with each branch featuring a cluster of sharp blades. This weapon was called Longshan, the wolf brush. Properly trained soldiers could wield the wolf brush in battle to keep an enemy at bay and support a heavy infantryman who stood at point. These flexible mixed-unit squad tactics allowed his army to soundly defeat nearly every pirate force they encountered. Qi Jiguang would pen two military treatises and author several poems throughout his lifetime. His adventures battling the pirate menace are the primary subject matter for the 2017 Chinese film God of War. The film unfortunately seems to take seriously the since-debunked idea that the pirates menacing China's seaboard were mainly Japanese, going so far as to make their leaders a disgraced samurai clan who have turned to piracy as a means of getting back into the shogunate's good graces through gifts of plunder. Still, I think the film is worth a watch if this historical period interests you, especially because it does indeed include some accurate bits. The state of the Ming bureaucracy in the latter 1500s was filled with rivalries, plots, backstabbings, and false accusations, and the film portrays that rather well. It even includes the fact that some rival officials accused Qi Jiguang of secretly collaborating with the Wokou. The victories he attained in his campaigns against the pirates bore fruit eventually, as eventually the few bands of buccaneers who remained steered clear of China's shores for many years after Qi Jiguang had neutralized their threat. Afterward, he was reassigned to the northern frontier where he made repairs to the Great Wall, ably defended against Mongol incursions, and put the finishing touches on his written works. Emperor Jia Jing died in 1567, and his son took the throne as Emperor Longqing, the long, somewhat lackadaisical reign of his father had resulted in nationwide corruption and dangerous inefficiency. The new emperor strove to enact sweeping reforms to remove ministers who were lining their pockets and taking bribes, but he became terribly ill just five years later, and on his deathbed he implored a high-ranking minister named Zhang Zhuzheng to help his ten-year-old son to continue fixing what the late emperor Jia Jing had allowed to fall into disrepair. 
This was good news for Qi Jiguang, whom Zhang Zhuzhang had identified as an honest commander worthy of promotion. The young Emperor Wan Li benefited from Zhang Zhuzhang's reforms for the ten years which the minister had left to live. However, Zhang Zhuzhang was far from a perfect man, and while he imposed strict austerity upon large swaths of public bureaus, he lived a somewhat luxurious lifestyle which his opponents claimed made him a hypocrite. He was especially determined to remove eunuchs from the high-ranking positions they had been holding, which led to them unifying and helping various departments resist Zhuzhang's spending cuts. In 1582, Zhang Zhuzhang died, and Qi Jiguang was suddenly bankrupt of any political capital. Identified as a friend of Zhang, he was summarily dismissed from office in 1583, at which point his wife left him. He lived in poverty for five years more, then died in obscurity in 1588. The eunuchs at court were once more promoted to high offices and proceeded to target anyone who had helped Zhang Zhuzhong and his reform efforts. Many of these officials were men of principle who did not follow Zhang out of personal loyalty, but because they shared a Neo-Confucian ideal of active, fiscally responsible government. Thus, by the late 1580s, the Ming Dynasty was filled with corrupt governors, tax collectors, and generals, at precisely a time when they would need honest, skilled men working on behalf of the empire and not using their position to extort or coerce. There was good reason by this point for the Ming Dynasty to be nervous about its future in the late 1500s. To their north, various Manchu people were setting aside their differences with one another, and were rapidly unifying in a way they hadn't before. To their northwest, the Mongols likewise were showing troubling signs of reinvigoration, and their eastern neighbors the Japanese were also resolving their problems with one another and on the verge of unifying under a single banner. Meanwhile, expenditures were high, revenues were low, and in the 1590s, the military would have to contend with three separate large-scale campaigns which would sap public resources, devastate the economy, and set the ship of state teetering toward collapse. Next time, we will discuss concurrent developments on the Korean peninsula, as the Joseon dynasty will be forced to contend with many similar pressures and crises as Ming China, but prove much more resilient in the long term. Until then, thank you for listening. If you would like access to exclusive bonus episodes, as well as ad-free versions of the regular episodes, please consider supporting this podcast at patreon.com slash ahistoryofjapan.